Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. In the last episode, I explained how Sherlock Holmes's great uncle, by adopting him and changing his name, had allowed him to erase his past, essentially. The question is, how did he manage to convince the public thereafter that he was fictional? And that's a bit more complicated. So let's start with Arthur Conan Doyle. I'm sure you remember that pursuant to the contract that he signed with Holmes and Watson, he had complete editorial control over the memoirs. And so early on, before he even published the first installment, he made the decision to present Holmes and Watson as fictional characters. He didn't consult anyone, and it came as a shock to Watson particularly, because Watson had been hoping to generate business for Holmes by means of these accounts. And that wasn't going to happen if the public was led to believe that Holmes was fictional. Now, as for Holmes, as I've already explained, he was always ambivalent about publicity. So this decision to present the histories as fiction was, I think, in many ways a relief. He wouldn't be expected to do interviews. He wouldn't be expected to promote the story through public appearances. He didn't have to do readings. And on top of everything else, He was really unhappy with the way that Doyle had turned his scientific investigations into essentially pulp fiction. He didn't want to be associated with what he considered to be schlocky art and dime novel garbage. So in a lot of ways, this was fine with him. Sometime in late 1886 or 1887, Doyle sells the first of these memoirs. It's entitled A Study in Scarlet. And it comes out in a magazine in December of 1887. Around this time, Mycroft is trying to convince his boss in the government, this guy who was his patron, an old friend of his from Oxford, somebody named Archibald Primrose. That's really his name. He's trying to convince Archibald Primrose, who is also the fifth Earl of Rosebery, he's trying to convince him that Sherlock would be a really good candidate to serve as a for-hire secret agent or undercover agent, both for domestic and international problems. This story comes out in December of 1887, and Mycroft goes to Rosebery or Primrose, however you want, whatever you want to call him. And he says, look at the story. This is really who my brother is. This is how smart he is. This is how energetic he is. Why don't you talk to him? Rosebery had done a lot of good things for Mycroft's career. He had protected him. He had promoted him. He had advocated for him. He'd done a lot for him. He thought very highly of Mycroft. So he says, I'm willing to meet with your brother. And he looks at the accounts. He looks at the memoirs that have just been published, and he says, but I want this guy Watson to come in as well, because Watson clearly plays a role in getting all this stuff published. And I want both these guys to be clear that if Holmes is going to work for the British government, it has to be anonymously, and he has to go along with the whole idea that he's a fictional character. He has to pretend he doesn't exist. So I want these two guys to come in and meet with me, and they set up a time. Now, this is a period in British history. It's not a particularly active period in terms of what's going on internationally. Britain did seize control and occupy Egypt, and they stayed in charge of Egypt for about 60 or 70 years. So they're trying to consolidate the control of that country. And they had been having pretty serious problems with Irish revolutionaries in the mid-1880s. I think there was a dynamite campaign where the Irish revolutionaries were blowing up bridges and trying to assassinate Queen Victoria. 
Compared to other periods in British government, it really wasn't that bad. And then, of course, we've got the Ripper murders about to happen, but nobody knew those were coming. Anyway, as I mentioned, Primrose had never met Sherlock before. So they set up this appointment and Primrose comes out into this ante room at Whitehall. He has this big office and he comes out of the office at about nine in the morning and he comes out and he greets them. And, and this whole thing is described in the notes. And he brings them in and he basically says to Holmes, I've read this account of you this called The Study in Scarlet. I see how you're portrayed. Give me some proof. Tell me, look around. Look, anything you see here in the office, anything you see about me, anything you've seen since you've been in this building that you think you can make some observations and deductions and show me how smart you are. So Sherlock says, well, this morning you had a visitor and I think he lives or lived or visited Istanbul. He's a heavy smoker. He uses a cigarette holder. He's left-handed. He dresses well. He was agitated or nervous before he met you. He waited for 10 or 15 minutes in the ante room before you came out and got him. He was here just before us and he's left by some kind of secret exit from your office. So Primrose goes, that's pretty impressive. Tell me you figured all that out in your own. Just be honest here. Your brother has given you some information, right? And Holmes goes, no, it's really pretty simple. And he proceeds to explain. He goes, there was a lot of footprints in front of the sofa. I knew that Watson and I were probably the second appointment you had this morning because we're early. So somebody is pacing up and down the carpet before we get there. The sofa has tables on both ends. Whoever was here before us could have chosen to sit anywhere on the sofa. I noticed that a coffee cup and an ashtray are on the left-hand table, which means that the person was almost certainly left-handed. There are three cigarette butts in the ashtray, only one match, which leads me to believe that the guy was chain-smoking. He was lighting one cigarette from another. I think he's from Istanbul because I'm an expert on tobacco, tobacco ash cigarettes, basically all forms of tobacco. He goes, I'm guilty of a monograph on the subject. And he says, I noticed that the lettering on the paper, the white cigarette paper on each of these three butts was in the alphabet of the Ottoman Turks. It's not quite the same as the Arabic alphabet. I think they must have been purchased in Constantinople or somewhere in that part of the Ottoman Empire, because even though this particular company exports tobacco to Great Britain, When we get their cigarettes, they are sold to us through the export market, which means that their brand name is stamped on the paper in English. We don't get their cigarettes with the Arabic alphabet or the Ottoman alphabet on it. I think it's he uses a cigarette holder because the butts don't have that wrinkly, wet look that you see on cigarettes when they've been in somebody's mouth. Plus, it looks like they've been screwed into a cigarette holder. Left-handed because the coffee cup, the the handle of the cup was pointed to the left. Handle of the spoon was pointed to the left on the left-hand table. That's almost certainly indicative that he's left-handed. He goes, I think he was well-dressed because he left behind a a really high-quality cotton handkerchief. It's made with Aegean cotton. That's the finest brand of Turkish cotton. Those are expensive. It's really high-quality material. He was obviously distracted. That's partly why he left the handkerchief here, it appears. There were some coffee stains on the handkerchief and the coffee stains were damp. It looks like he was nervous. He probably spilled the coffee at some point. He wipes it up with the handkerchief and he's too nervous or too distracted to put it back in his pocket. Now, as for whether he came back out the front door, the public door that we've just come through or disappeared some other way, I notice that somebody's been sitting across from you 
across from the desk, directly across from you. I can see the imprint of the chair legs in the carpet. They're pretty deep. That means they're fresh or recent. And then I see some footprints headed back, two sets of footprints headed back to the back of the office, which means you came around the desk and accompanied him to the back of the office. I can see them in the carpet. And I'm pretty sure if I went back to the far end of your office, I would be able to find this secret exit. So interesting stuff. We see these sorts of routines from Holmes on a regular basis, but this is what got him the job. And he really loved doing this. He pretended that it was nothing and he was blasé about it, but It's just very interesting that he couldn't help himself. He was always doing that. So in terms of developing his own practice and doing that in addition to working for the government, Holmes takes some major steps to protect his identity, and he adopts some practices that he maintains for the rest of his career. One of the things he starts to do is that when people come to meet with him, if he has to meet with them in person... He sets up a screen, like either a wooden or a cloth screen, and he sits on one side of it. So the client comes in and sits on the other side, and there's this little rectangular peephole for home. So he can look through and see what these people look like. He can size them up, but they can't see him. And in addition, not only could they not see him, but he often disguised his voice. A lot of his clients came through the police. The police would pay him. If they couldn't solve a case and they needed his assistance, they'd hire him. And if he had to go down to the scene of the crime, he would usually just dress like a plainclothes officer and pretend he worked for the police and he'd assume an alias. And then wealthy clients would come to him and he would have them essentially sign a non-disclosure agreement or whatever that 1890 version of that was. For the most part, wealthy clients and even nobility or royalty sometimes from royal families in Europe, they were usually perfectly happy to do this because they didn't want their dirty linen aired. The idea that their family problems or their scandals would be made public was terrifying to them. So that was not an issue. Among other things, the British government furnished Holmes and Watson with several fake passports. In those days, they didn't have passports with photographs, so that was easy. And so I think this explains pretty well why these two guys remained invisible and managed to get away with it. I want to talk a little bit about the Moriarty's. They play a huge role in this case, particularly the youngest brother, whose name was Jabez, J-A-B-E-Z. So there are three brothers. The oldest is James. He's probably the most intelligent. He's overall the most important, not for the purposes of this podcast, but in terms of the impact he had on his time and his world. And he's mentioned a number of times in the official records. Holmes calls him the Napoleon of crime and describes him as the head of a vast criminal organization. He's an evil schemer. He's villainous. He's calculating. And like Mycroft, this character, James Moriarty, who becomes a professor, he had been a math prodigy. He'd also been some kind of astrophysics whiz. And he had written something called The Dynamics of an Asteroid. And I think Holmes says it had a European vogue. It made a big splash in the academic world. He has a lot of early academic success, but because of some unspecified malfeasance, he gets forced out of his tenured professorship and he has to go find something else to do. He becomes an army coach, which means he tutors people that are trying to get commissions in the British army. And that is a dead end, and that's just to buy him some time. And then he heads into the criminal world, and he builds up this enormous criminal enterprise. And so then there are two younger brothers. There's Adam, who's the middle brother, and he doesn't really come into this podcast, not in any significant way. 
And finally, the youngest brother, Jabez. James is eight years older than Adam, and he's 13 years older than Jabez. All three of these brothers have different fathers. One mother, three fathers. And so you would think they would all have different last names, but they all adopt the Moriarty name. And that's a sign of how domineering the oldest brother is. He creates this criminal syndicate and the two brothers being naturally villainous and with criminal strains in their blood, as Holmes would say, they are willing participants. They gladly join in. And in order to take advantage of this brand, the Moriarty brand, the moniker, and to get a leg up in terms of their standing in the organization, they just use the same last name. And when Holmes is talking to Watson, whenever he talks about Moriarty, he loves to compare him to a giant spider. He says he's a venomous spider lurking at the center of a giant web of crime, and the filaments of the web are cast in all directions, and Moriarty is sensitive to the faintest vibration in this criminal web, and he's just waiting for his prey. This is an image he uses all the time. It's basically Moriarty the spider. And then when he's telling Watson about the mother of these three brothers, he refers to her as a latrodectus, a latrodectus. And Watson goes, what's that? And of course, Holmes has to get his digs in and he goes, didn't you learn anything in the course of your provincial studies? Meaning when you were in America. And anyway, he goes on to say, a latrodectus is a genus of the spider family These are the widow spiders, the black widow, red widow, brown widow, the wolf spider. And what distinguishes them from other spiders is that they have, the females have the habit of consuming the male partners after they mate. And so Holmes says, what happened in the case of Moriarty's mother and the three individual fathers is that after each one of them essentially impregnates her shortly after, she kills them one by one. And Watson says, well, how does she do it? And Holmes goes, what do spiders do? It's poison. He he said, isn't that always their method? So his theory is, he knows that these three husbands have been killed, and his theory is that she's poisoned them, and he's got some evidence to back that up. So she's really bad news, obviously. And when we talk about the whole issue of the Moriarty's, We have to also talk about disinclination of everybody, except for basically Watson and Mycroft. They're all disinclined to believe what Holmes is saying about the Ripper murders, because he's blaming them on the Moriarty's. He's saying, essentially, that the Moriarty syndicate has decided to take over prostitution in London. They want to put the fear of God into all the prostitutes, get them in line, and so they kill off these sort of low-level prostitutes that aren't ever going to make them any money anyway. These are kind of the dregs of the prostitute world. And it's to send a message and strike fear into the hearts of every prostitute in London and get them all to you know, do his bidding. So Holmes is trying to convince the police, he's trying to convince the British government, and he's not having much success. And the question is, why not? Well, there are a number of reasons. A couple of the reasons are his fault. He's like the boy who cried wolf, that Aesop fable. The boy who's always screaming, wolf, wolf, he's the shepherd, and the people from the village are always running out, and there's no wolf, and this boy just rolls on the ground with laughter, and ha ha, I tricked you again. And then a wolf finally comes and eats all the sheep, and he's screaming, there's a wolf, there's a wolf, and nobody comes out. 
We've seen how Holmes loved to pull people's legs. He's constantly joking and teasing, and he does this to Watson all the time. And we see it in particular in the first memoir when he tells Watson he doesn't know that the sun is at the center of the solar system and and that the earth revolves around the sun. And Watson believes him. So if you have somebody who's constantly telling you stuff with a straight face that's untrue, and this is their MO, and this is how they like to interact with you and get a rise out of you, eventually, when they say stuff, you're going to assume it isn't true. If they say something that doesn't sound quite right on its face, that is not completely and immediately obvious, if they're always joking with you and trying to trick you and do this to you, you're not going to believe them. So when he's going around telling everybody, this is the Moriarty's, they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. Ha ha, that's funny. That's one of the problems. Another problem is that Doyle gets the word out to everybody, not just to the gullible public that thinks that Holmes is fictional, but to obviously to everybody else, to the people in the British government and the police who know that Holmes is real, they all see in these published accounts, in the official accounts, that Holmes is a regular drug user. He's a heavy drug user by the late 1880s, and this becomes common knowledge. And it's talked about a lot in the second memoir, which was published in 1890. That was called The Sign of Four. And that starts out with Holmes shooting up cocaine. Watson says something along the lines of he'd been doing this two or three times a day every day for months. So when Holmes has a breakdown, he, he ends up having a complete physical and nervous breakdown in 1891, but he's headed in that direction already in the late 1880s. When he's trying to solve the Ripper murders, people say it was just this delirium. It was this drug-induced madness. And so for those two reasons, he has a really hard time convincing anybody that the Moriarty's are behind these murders. And really, the only people who took him seriously, Mycroft took him seriously from the start, and eventually Watson takes him seriously. But that is, I'll I'll tell you the reason why in maybe the next episode, there's a really disturbing anecdote, a story, an account that they hear from someone. Uh, Holmes takes Watson out to meet somebody out somewhere in central England, the Midlands, uh, for the sole purpose of convincing Watson that his view of the Moriarty's and what he's saying about the Moriarty's is true. At any rate, on top of everything else, Moriarty also bribed politicians and members of the police force. And so that has two effects in terms of trying to solve the crimes. Number one, the people that he's bribing are protecting him. They're refusing to, they're saying, oh, we don't believe that Moriarty is a criminal. We don't buy any of this. We're not going to investigate it. We're not going to push an investigation along these lines. On top of that, they're tipping Moriarty off whenever they get information about what Holmes is up to. So not only are they frustrating and blocking Holmes by saying, oh, we don't believe you, while they're, getting, while they're taking bribes, at the same time, they're tipping Moriarty off so that he can avoid any traps that Holmes is trying to set for him. Holmes and Mycroft know there are informants in the British government, but they don't know who they are, so they never really know who to trust. One thing that Holmes is able to do with Mycroft's assistance is to cut off Moriarty's funding sources. Any criminal enterprise needs to have a pretty big cash flow. You've got to be bribing politicians. You've got to be bribing police officers. You've got to be paying all the people in your organization. So Holmes and Mycroft between them figure out how Moriarty is banking this money, how he's laundering it, and they cut it off. They squeeze, they choke it off. 
And that causes all kinds of problems for Moriarty. He's unable to continue bribing the politicians and the police. He runs out of money in that respect. And also, he can't afford to pay the people that are working for him. And he'd always been generous up to that point. So there's this large-scale defection from his organization. And then on top of that, Holmes gets pretty strong proof on some of the low-level members of this organization, and he flips them, just like they do nowadays. In exchange for a lenient sentence, he gets a defendant to divulge what they know, and that helps him to build a case against Moriarty. But the thing that really ended the Ripper murders more than anything else was the public outcry. The newspaper coverage and the pressure that was brought to bear on the police and the leading politicians forced Moriarty to shut this down, and it led to the investigation and the way that I've already explained that Holmes and Mycroft were able to cut off his finances and the source of his income. The person that was committing these murders, according to Holmes, was the youngest brother, Jabez. So when the murders stop, and the last one Holmes believes was actually in 1891, early 1891, Jabez flees and Moriarty flees. All three of the brothers, they scatter like cockroaches. And Holmes is convinced that the youngest one has gone to the United States. He's not sure where the other two are. He would be willing to trace any of the three, but the best leads are the ones he has for Jabez. He believes that he's fled to New England, and so that's why he and Watson end up going in the summer of 1892. One other thing I wanted to say before I get any further is that one other thing that happened in the years right before the Ripper murders is that Holmes's brother Orville has been really struggling with serious mental illness for a while. And right around the time he entered college, maybe his first year in college, he develops the symptoms of schizophrenia and his mental health deteriorates drastically. And he's in a lunatic asylum for the rest of his life, and he ends up dying quite young. So this is another huge stressor on Holmes, because as I said, the two real emotional relationships he has as an adult are with Orville and Watson. And I've described Watson's friendship to him, and I don't think it was a really healthy friendship. I've told you why. I think the friendship with Orville was a more a more healthy relationship, but then Orville disappears on him emotionally. Orville goes through this hellish, depressing, heartbreaking decline and descent into madness, and Holmes doesn't know how to handle that. And what he does eventually is it hardens him, and he becomes more cynical and more disengaged. At the same time, it was this connection. Orville was the bridge between Holmes and this friend of Orville's named Endicott Peabody. And so that is an interesting aspect to all of this. It's not a huge factor, but it's something that I think is worth talking about in future episodes. Okay, so the next episode, I think we'll have some more information about the Ripper murders. Not an awful lot, but some. And then I want to cover this event that portrays the brutality of the Moriarty family. And this is the trip that Holmes and Watson go on to the Midlands, where Watson hears from a witness firsthand what these brothers have done. I hope you join me for the next episode. And as always, thanks for listening. Until next time, take care. <laughs>